I think we have to look very hard before we start to approve a vaccine so that we don't upend public trust. Because in the end, we need the public to take these vaccines when they're good. And if we ruin that at the beginning by causing mistrust, then that's going to have really bad consequences down the road. This has been incredibly difficult. To no one's surprise, Journal of American Medical Association said we're all drinking more. The number of opioid deaths and deaths from depression have started to go up. We're all struggling with anxiety. We're all struggling with uncertainty. All I can say is it's going to be the present and the future for a while. Get used to wearing a mask. Get used to doing hand hygiene. Get used to these mitigation efforts. Incorporate them into your daily life. The good news is we do now know that this virus is susceptible to good policy changes when they change human behavior. It's not like this is fate or something. We know that. This virus is susceptible to good policy. If we have elected officials that are willing to use that policy, those policies, they are now evidence-based. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Vitalist Spark podcast. I'm your host, John Ford, and we're back with another COVID-19 roundtable discussion at an awkward spot in our journey so far. We say awkward because in Arizona, it isn't quite clear what might happen soon. But there is a sense, based on other states, that another increase in cases could be coming. Depending on which data you choose, up to 39 states are now experiencing an upward trend in COVID-19 cases. In places like Bismarck, North Dakota, hospitals are already at capacity. Here in Arizona, There are indications, but not a clear trend as of this discussion's October 12 recording date. This roundtable starts where most previous editions left off, with vaccines. Phase 3 trials are in process. In this episode, we share what is known to this point about possible availability and possible protocols for who gets access to vaccines when. There's also a highly informative discussion about the pros and cons of emergency use authorization versus a full three-phase trial approach. There's a lot more than that to this episode, and we'll get to our guests in just a moment. First, please recognize that there are some things we do know. Masks work, as does physical distancing, and avoiding higher-risk situations that could become super-spreading events. So, be COVID smart. Stay at home as much as you possibly can, wash up, mask up, maintain physical distancing, and keep a heads up for your fellow Arizonans. It is possible for Arizona to avoid a fall surge. Our actions today make that difference. All right, let's get to it. It's time to talk vaccines, super spreaders, modeling, emergency use authorizations, and more. In short, it's time to talk about life with COVID-19 as of mid-October 2020. We are back again with another COVID-19 roundtable and have a great set of guests for you today. First off, Mr. Will Humble. Will, how are you doing? Very good. Thanks for the invitation. Joining us again from ASU, Joshua LaBear. How are you, sir? Good. It's always good to be here. And once again, back with us, Dr. Nicholas Vasquez. Nick, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Looking forward to it. Let's start with the vaccine. People are getting different dates as to when a vaccine might be available. They also have practically zero understanding of when they as individuals might have access to the vaccine. Will, talk us through what you know right now related to vaccines. And I should have used the plural, shouldn't I? Vaccines. Yeah, that's right. Vaccines. There are several phase three trials. That's the final phase uh, where you're doing the clinical testing of the vaccines. A couple of those trials will be ending right around Halloween. 
So the FDA has committed to making that data public when it arrives from these vaccine candidate manufacturers for FDA review. And then there's a really big giant question that's outstanding that would have a big impact on the timeline of when people would able to get vaccinated. And that is whether the FDA is going to entertain from vaccine manufacturers a request for emergency use authorization of the vaccine. That would mean that the manufacturers could deploy the vaccine under emergency use authorization, which avoids the full committee review of the safety and efficacy of the vaccine. It's a really important decision because in order to get emergency use authorization, all you have to do is to show the FDA that the benefits of the vaccine likely exceed the risks and that it's likely effective versus approval, which is that you need to demonstrate that it's both safe and effective. If you go to emergency use authorization, then that cuts about six to eight weeks off the timeline. So you could take a shortcut, get the vaccine into the field before Christmas if you used emergency use authorization, not before the election, but around Thanksgiving, something like that for some of these early population groups, or at least whoever each state is going to prioritize for early doses of the vaccine. It's reasonable people could differ on this question about whether the nature of this pandemic and the nature of the interventions that are underway and the economic distress that those cause, should we go ahead and support emergency use authorization of the vaccine with the understanding that, yes, we're taking a risk that we could be deploying a vaccine that may have adverse effects we don't know about or may not be as effective as we think. Should we do that in order to vaccinate people more quickly? I don't think so, because I think we're risking the long-term perception of the American public, and we're risking that it would be much harder later on to get people to voluntarily get vaccinated if it turns out that there's adverse events that we could have known about and prevented had we gone through the full approval process. Josh, your thoughts on emergency use authorization? I hear Will's concerns, and I think there are issues. I think one thing that we're facing right now is a great deal of distrust from the public about scientific matters. They don't know where to anchor things. They're worried that it's too politicized and that they don't know what to trust in terms of information. So I think there is a concern here that the FDA lets this through too easily, then should they get vaccinated? Should they even trust the vaccine? Is it going to be safe for them? And some of the most at-risk communities are the ones that are most concerned right now. So I think there are some real issues. That said, every one of these vaccines has within its organization an oversight committee that is supposed to be looking at all of these issues. At certain stages, they'll be able to unblind and look at whether or not there is efficacy. Yet another issue that people need to be aware of is that efficacy doesn't mean that it's 100% efficacious. It just means that the vaccine might be 50% effective at reducing transmission. On the other hand, that could be a game changer. 50% ability to prevent spread would help us. I haven't thought it through enough to, to say that I totally disagree with an EUA, but I understand why there are concerns. And I think we have to look very hard before we start to approve a vaccine so that we don't upend public trust. Because in the end, we need the public to take these vaccines when they're good. And if we ruin that at the beginning by causing mistrust, then that's going to have really bad consequences down the road. You just summed up my position right there at the end. I would agree. As frontline physician, I'd love for us to get to either herd immunity or fully vaccinated. I'd love to be done with this as a parent. 
but the CDC and the federal government already have two strikes against them in some respects when it comes to everybody's trust in them, whether it be the mask mandates or not mask mandates or some of the other ways in which this is handled. Any inkling of an oops or a, oh, we didn't figure that one out or we didn't think about that one is going to get magnified in this environment and taken advantage of by people who have less than stellar motivations online. You have to go to the nth degree for these vaccines to make sure that they're safe. Efficacious second, safe first. That just takes time. Time and number of people that you expose, a number of volunteers that you do. It's kind of hard in the midst of a pandemic, but we're going at a breakneck pace anyway. If it took three years to get a vaccine out, we would set a record. We're talking January or February. I'm hopeful that they do their due diligence when it comes to the safety profiles. So let's be clear about this, because at the beginning, Will, you said we could save six to eight weeks. But what we didn't talk about was what would happen in those six to eight weeks. How many more people would be part of the trials? And because each individual's immune system is so different, how important that is. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think the difference isn't that you'd get more people into the clinical trials. The difference is the rigor in which the clinical trial data would be evaluated. It's about the depth of the analysis of that phase three data more than that you're enrolling more patients. I'm going to leave that to the scientists. I'm so far away from basic science in school. And I can remember all of this stuff, but it's like saying, I remember how to speak French in college. Everything has changed so much since then. The tools are different. The technology is different. The capabilities are so much more different. It's like trying to put me in a courtroom and ask me what's going to happen. I've seen it on TV, but I'm not really sure. I would like to see an impartial committee that is assembled as part of this review process for making a recommendation to the FDA commissioner. They dive into the data. They're objective. They have no conflicts of interest. They're well-seasoned professionals who are capable of looking at that phase three trial data and really doing that kind of analysis that we need and making a recommendation to the FDA commissioner about whether to approve it or not, or under what conditions should it be approved? You're talking about the FDA committees? Yeah. Because each company that's making a vaccine also has a committee, right? Yeah, but I'm looking for that impartiality for folks that- Look, those committees are supposed to be made up of people who don't have any stock in the company. They have no vested interest and they're supposed to also. So there should be two levels. That's right. I didn't know the particulars of the inside of the company's work. Reasonable people could differ on this. There is a good argument to be made. Hey, Let's just go for it because this is just causing so much distress. And remember, these manufacturers have been making the vaccine during phase three. So it's going to be available fast. It's not like normal vaccine where the FDA approves it. Then they say, well, what price do you think we can get? I don't want to say that there isn't a case to be made for fast-tracking it and getting it right now in its unfinished form. Famously, a couple of countries have already started doing that. But those countries are also willing to tolerate the risk and tolerate whatever happens on the other end. They're willing to tolerate losing individual people. And all I can say is, imagine if you're an elderly person or imagine if you're a parent and you go to get the vaccination and you say, well, how safe is this? And someone goes, eh. It's just not going to happen in the United States. I think the people who are most privileged aren't really going to follow along with it. And then if people who are most vulnerable get wind of that, I don't think they're going to follow along with it either. I think you've got this chip on people's shoulders that you need to take into account 
But the economic argument of, hey, I don't want that, let's get on with this, I, I think is a reasonable one. We've poisoned the water so much that I don't think the uptake would be there. Well, I agree so with the, you. the most important thing that everybody needs to adhere to is transparency. So if we're going to advocate for anything, any data should be released openly for any of these trials. Whether, Whether it's, it's an EUA or not. Or not. If it's an right, EUA, right. then yeah. give us the yeah, transparency. The data have to come out. I mean, obviously, they're going to keep it blinded while it needs to be blinded. But once they're ready to apply for authorization, every vaccine has to be open about its data. That, I think that's the most important thing. Legally, they don't have to, but the FDA has made that commitment and so have the manufacturers. With that joint statement, there was a joint statement by all of the vaccine manufacturers. To my mind, it's unprecedented. I know maybe it's happened yeah. before. I really like the fact that they all got together and made a statement about transparency and committed to finishing phase three before any of them would ask for emergency use authorization or apply for approval. So the last time we were all together, everybody basically said earliest might be January, but probably somewhere between February and April is when this vaccine might start to come out. Any changes to that from anybody? If the phase three data looks good, I think January right around New Year's looks doable for these early populations. And yeah, maybe that's where we should go next with this. Allow me to continue to be the professional pessimist, and I'm happy to be wrong here, but that last mile, I think that last mile problem is still going to be the problem, and I'm still picking late spring. If you get a vaccine that the FDA approves and it comes out on inauguration day, I'm not happy about the overtones that that's going to have. I would hope that people would maybe wait a little bit and make it not look so well-timed to the outside world. At the federal government's risk, they have pumped money into all these companies to start preparing doses, even before the trials are done. And they're not going to release those doses until they get authorization. They are poised to start getting them out, as Will said, to the, to the, the highest risk populations or whatever the high priority populations are going to be. So let's get that nailed down. Will, what is the protocol as it has been just released? Well, there's no official protocol yet, but the National Academies of Medicine did an independent evaluation and analysis. And it was a good task force with a, a wide range of talented folks. And they came out with a study that was commissioned by the NIH and the CDC. So the National Institutes of Health and the CDC paid for the study. I've got it up on my blog. They came out with what they suggest as tier one, two, three, and four populations. So tier one in their report, these are recommendations that states can make other decisions, et cetera. It's frontline healthcare workers. And I looked right away to make sure that that included workers at assisted living, skilled nursing facilities, and it even includes home health workers. So that's good. It includes hospitals. So that's the tier 1A population. Tier 1B right after that is emergency services workers. So I read that to mean EMTs and paramedics. It didn't say that, but it sounded to me like they were talking about EMS. Next is older adults in crowded settings. So that would be folks in assisted living, skilled nursing, those kinds of settings. Now, remember, tier 1A is the staff. So they would get the vaccine before the actual residents, which I think makes sense. And the fourth tier one group are people of all ages with comorbid conditions with significantly increased risks. And so that's tier one. The way they did it is they have tier one, tier two, tier three, tier four. So tier two includes like people with developmental disabilities who are living in group settings, folks like that. I'm not going to go through all the tiers, 
but tier four are college kids, people in their twenties and thirties and stuff with no pre-existing conditions and that kind of thing. So I like the fact that it's a objective review. People on the steering committee are well-respected. The final report was actually pretty darn specific. And quite honestly, I expect most states and most counties to adopt the National Academy plan because number one, it makes sense. But number two, it's hard to criticize the group of folks that did this analysis. These are well-seasoned and well-respected professionals that put this report together. And you can look at the steering committee to see who those folks were. It was led by Bill Feige, who's a CDC director back during the Carter administration, actually. I would love to see certain groups get vaccinated first, but this is all about stats. The groups I would love to see get vaccinated first are the ones who are dying the most. I'm all about saving the lives and I would have thought that physicians would have been a little later, like EMTs and physicians would have been a little later. But then over the weekend, some 28-year-old ob resident died from COVID. Maybe that's just too fresh in the mind. Sounds like the driving force here was to vaccinate people who are likely to be spreaders or potential spreaders. It sounds like a lot of the evidence emerging lately is that a lot of the spreading is happening at super spreader events. India released by far the most comprehensive study so far of COVID-19, looking at data from 575,000 individuals who were tested after coming into contact with about 85,000 confirmed cases. They found that it was super spreaders. They knew that they were basically of a low viral load at the time of the contact. It didn't spread. It does agree well with what we're seeing in the States. More and more evidence is emerging that that is what we're seeing here as well. Particularly super spreader individuals who happen to be in a setting where there's a lot of people interacting, probably not wearing masks and such. I think that now a year into this, in October, and we began to start having problems in November and the world learned about it in December and we started having shutdowns in February and March. A year into this now, we're still trying to figure out all the ways in which this is spreading or not spreading. I think you can make two like fairly definitive statements. First being masks work. And the second being, if you're sick, stay the frick home. I feel like these two things would seem fundamental, but we seem to still be arguing over them. And yet every time we look at this data, there's more and more of this signal coming forth that if you wear a mask and if you're feeling symptomatic, you stay home, this reduces spread. We're just going to get to the end of this two years and go, hey, our data says, masks work and when you're sick stay home which we could have said about the flu about the cold about any particular respiratory virus out there Think of the our effective value, this idea that each person can affect up to two people or three people or something like that. And there's this tendency to think that this is happening in a continuous form or some kind of a homogeneous form and that every person is going to go out and give it to a couple people. But in fact, that's not what's happening. It's, it's much more sporadic. One person could give it to many people. Other people may not give it to anyone. It's a discontinuous function, if you will. Big advice here is to avoid events where there's likelihood of a lot of spreading. We've seen that highlighted in the news quite a bit lately, and we've seen it over and over again over the course of this whole story. I think this is something we all have to pay attention to. Well, since the last time we were together, the president of the United States became infected with COVID. And to Josh's point just now, we think that there was an event at the White House that became a super spreader event. What does that teach us from a purely clinical, scientific, public health point of view? 
Just reinforces what we've been talking about for the last couple of minutes about are certain people that with a high viral load put into the right environment can really spread the virus to lots and lots of people. There is something about that event that a lot of people don't know, which is most of the photographs that were released about that event were at the outdoor event. But there was a meet and greet on the inside, which happened also. It wasn't all just an outdoor event. I think it just reinforces the fact that the virus does tend to behave in this way, which is different from influenza, by the way. It's a respiratory virus, but you don't see super spreading events like you do with this. Right. Which may see that there is more of an aerosol component to this virus, that it may get into smaller sized particles that can travel farther distances. It also is a reminder, events that rely in, uh, heavily on these antigen tests, just assume that if you test everybody, that that's going to take care of it probably not sufficient that in fact, there is anywhere between a 15% up to a 50% false negative rate with those tests. So they, they may miss true positives. You can't just rely on the testing. You've got to continue to wear masks, which gets back to Nick's point. We knew this and then it just wasn't followed. This me wonder about the major sports that we have going on, whether it be college football or NFL or any of the other sports. Yes. There's a great lesson here that you can't just rely on testing. You need to do the testing to see how you're doing as part of the overall epidemiologic response over your overall pandemic response, but you can't ignore the other steps along the way. I think we've found that out in meatpacking plants. I think we found that out in bars when we reopened them back in May. I think we found that out now with the White House. We found that out with the NFL. The sports that can bubble and then can do the kind of other things on testing are the ones that are successful like the NDA. And mm -hmm. I think that's a major lesson for the rest of us. When do we return back to normal? Will be a while. Yeah. We need to all accept that and start to incorporate those things into our daily lives while we live. Excellent point. The testing, especially like rapid testing, can be misleading because if the population you're testing is generally negative, even if the test is only 70% sensitive, which means that it's 70% of the true positives test positive, it's going to miss 30%. But if most of the people you're testing are negative, you won't notice that it's missing those 30%. Those positives will slip through and that's when you can get into trouble. People are coming to us going, hey, I got a cough or a sneeze and my employer wants me to get a negative COVID test before I can go back to work. And having to sit there and painfully explain to a lot of people, one test is not enough. You need two tests. So the CDC is recommending that not only the test, but you stay home if you're symptomatic, how long should I stay home? Well, about two weeks. I can't do that. These conversations we had on a daily basis between March, April, May, June, and it just took me right on back when NPR was talking to an infectious disease expert about the testing at the White House. It took me right back to where I had been back in March and April. There's no silver bullet other than keep some distance, mask, and take your precautions. I wish we could shout that from the hilltops. The CDC said that some of the spread was partial aerosol, that it can be spread by air, which is kind of scary. ER physicians have been there talking about that for a while now. You're supposed to wear an N95 or very high quality filtration system when you're doing intensive care, or CPR or intubation, or if you're in an enclosed space with someone who's likely to have COVID. So I've been living this for a little while, but to hear the CDC say it kind of confirms the threat that it has to frontline healthcare uh, workers and anybody who's sort of in physical close contact with COVID. There's just not enough 
N95s still or other similar masks. So it's still a problem that I wish we had a better response to, but it's not a hypothetical anymore. Be very careful about protecting yourself. And the second thing the CDC said was they released a prevalence study. And in the prevalence study, they said about 10% of the population of COVID so far, with obviously wide variation, it'll be higher in New York, which means 90% of the population is still vulnerable. We're nowhere near the end of this. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, that one just kind of punched to the gut kind of thing. Will, Nick says we're nowhere near the end of this. Josh clearly agrees. Many Arizonans think otherwise. Meanwhile, there are troubling signs from other parts of the country. What's going on by the numbers? Since we did this last time, here's what's happened. Two weeks ago, we had a lot of cases in that 15 to 24-year-old demographic. And I think everyone believes that that was tied to the opening of the universities, all three of them, not just the big universities, but other environments, GCU and others. But in the last two weeks, that has tapered off. And so we've seen a decrease in that trend line among the kids 15 to 25, but we're seeing in a slight increase, not a huge increase in the other populations. So older adults, middle-aged adults, and the younger children, we're seeing it go up a little bit, but not dramatically within those populations. So epidemiologically, that's what's happened in the last couple of weeks. One thing I think that's encouraging is that we haven't seen a big increase in the little kids because a lot of these districts have gone back into in-person school. There's incubation periods and it's too early to say that it's been successful, but at least there isn't evidence that it's really spiking in the little kids who've now been back at school. That may happen later, but at least so far that hasn't happened. Across the nation where you see the big increases in viral spread are a swath of states from Iowa to Montana and then down to Utah. So it's North Dakota, South Dakota, Idaho, Montana, which does have a face covering mandate statewide, and Utah. So that's where we see the bigger increases. And one of the common threads, Montana being the exception, is that there is very little mitigation whatsoever going on in any of those states with respect to face coverings, distancing. They have governors that are skeptical of imposing mitigation measures. And so what's going to happen in those states, I don't know. I saw something today that North Dakota's down to, now it's a small state, but in Bismarck, they're down to two ICU beds left. So sounds like North Dakota's awful lot like what we looked like in early July. There has been a slight uptick in our state, but as Will's saying, the numbers are not huge. But we have to keep an eye on it because if the trend continues, I mean, the thing about exponential spread is that it rises a little bit and all of a sudden it starts to really take off. So, Yeah, there's hardly any reaction time. If you remember back to early June, that's when we saw the beginning of the exponential growth curve in Arizona, which Josh, your team knew about and predicted with their right, predictive right. modeling. They said exactly what was going to happen with the decisions right. that were made in Arizona. And that's pretty much exactly what we saw. So we saw the beginning of that exponential growth curve and then nothing happened for a few weeks. And that's why we had such a miserable July with a lot of lives lost was the lack of being able to recognize that you need to make a move now when you start to see troubling data trends. I don't see troubling data trends right now. 
but it could change at any time. And then you've got to be able to have elected officials that are willing to make some decisions at that point or risk July 2.0. My heart breaks for people in North Dakota who are in hospitals. It's one of those nightmare things that thankfully did not come true for us here in Arizona. But Back in February, the whole idea that we could see Wuhan and we could see Italy happen in the United States, and then to watch part of it happen in New York, where you had people running out of hospital beds, you had hospitals running out of wall oxygen. There's stories of COVID patients who are hypoxic waiting in the waiting room, being given oxygen in tanks, and the tanks running out of oxygen, and then those people dying because there's no other oxygen. This is one of those nightmare situations where you just, you have no options. There's no way forward. It's check in mate. So if you run out of ICU beds and you run out of resources in North Dakota and you have nowhere else to go, it's not like you can fly them out someplace real fast. That's just a nightmare. So my heart goes out to them. Let's talk, Josh, a little bit more about the model. One of the things that a lot of models and predictions had said from the very beginning was that this would be life with COVID. In Arizona, we have seen roughly what we actually thought might happen, which is we started at a certain level of plateau. We had a big spike. Once mitigation kicked in, we went back to a new plateau, but that plateau is 20% higher than the previous plateau. Yeah. If you look at even at the state data or you look at our website, you'll see that we went down and now we're kind of creeping back up again. The inpatient population is rising. ICU beds are starting to rise a little bit. The emergency department numbers are certainly higher than they were back in the day. As you say, they've kind of plateaued at a higher value. So there are signs that if we don't remind everybody about the measures to take, we could start to take off again, especially because the counties are opening up, schools are starting more and more in-person stuff. We have to pay attention. I mean, the modelers at ASU are concerned. We're all looking at that and thinking it's a bit of an issue. We've got to pay attention. The good news is we do now know that this virus is susceptible to good policy changes when they change human behavior. It's not like this is fate or something. We know that. This virus is susceptible to good policy. If we have elected officials that are willing to use that policy, those policies, they are now evidence-based, at least observational studies. And the other half of that good news is that the population in the state has learned how to use those measures. So when told what to do, they will know what to do because they've done it before and they know it worked then. So I think that will also make many of them more willing to adopt the measures if they're needed. That's the part about this whole thing that I find fascinating, this idea of two-level chaos where one event occurs and because that event occurs, people react. And when they react, it changes the outcome of the first event. So if all of a sudden you see a spike again and the word goes out, we're having a spike, people are ready to change their behavior, which will change the outcome, which makes me wonder, does the model work still? And what does the model predict? This isn't the same population as back in May. These aren't people who have decided whole hog, they're just done with it and are going to go back to the bars. That's a smaller population that's doing it now. And and it makes me wonder, have we taken that into account? The good news is that even though we are on the rise in the state, and even though in particular Maricopa is on the rise, the seven-day trailing average has not crossed 1,000 a day. So we're still hovering in the 600, 700 new cases a day. So it's not going in the direction I would like it to go. I would like it to continue to decrease. 
You mentioned your modelers are concerned. I have to say I've spoken to one or two of them. They've expressed their concern, but tell me, what do you see for October, November, December, January, sort of this fall and winter? That's a tough one to predict. I mean, if you just predict the curve, it's heading in the wrong direction. But there are other factors, right? You know, we know that everybody knows how to use masks now. And, and I have to say, when I go out, where I live at least, which is fair enough, the East Valley, I still see most people wearing masks, which I wasn't seeing in May. In May, I was like terrified to look around and see everybody walk around without masks. So that's good news. Plus, we're entering the good weather period where people can spend much more time outdoors. And that is a good thing for Arizonans. I mean, it's terrible for the East Coast because they're going the other direction. But for us, people can do more stuff outdoors. And my hope is people will take that to heart. In, in Arizona, we can do Thanksgiving outside if we want to. That's not true in a lot of the country. It's hard to say what, what we're going to see uh, at the end of October and early November. I appreciate the model, but sometimes when I look at it, it looks a little bit like the confidence bands for a hurricane path. You know, <laughs> like after about like three days, you can't figure out where it's going to be and you yeah. can just throw up your hands and go, oh, we'll see. The May model, if you look in retrospect and look back at it, I've seen the stuff that Tim came up with on this. If you look at that biodesign model that they built back in April even, and you look at what they predicted would happen based on various policy decisions, and then you look at the policy decisions that were actually made, what they predicted is pretty much what happened. And that's the value of predictive models. It's not that it says this is what's going to happen, but it says if you do the following things, this is what you can expect to happen. If you do fewer of these things, this is what would happen. And if you do nothing different, this is what would happen. That's the true value of these predictive models is it gives you policy scenarios that show you what they think would happen. They have this thing called beta. I'll never understand it. Tim tried to explain it to me for an hour one time on a Zoom. There's these factors in the equation that they continually assess and look to the sensitivity of policy interventions, and then they readapt their model to it. So the model keeps getting better, and it was pretty darn good in April. I don't believe the team has done that kind of scenario planning recently. That would be an interesting thing to try and to go back and do scenario planning. Yeah, like with the schools, look at the various scenarios. I think that's a good thing for them to do, whether or not our elected official would use it this time or not, I don't know. But if I was governor, I would be saying that's one of the first things I'd want is to well, get ma- those But many of the schools are using mitigation factors, not all of them, but many of them are using mitigation factors. So they're insisting on kids wearing masks and you know, they're maintaining spacing and all that stuff. The state is full of human beings and there are a whole bunch of different things that are going to happen in the coming months, not the least of which would be the holidays, not the least of which would be an influx of farm workers in Yuma County for the picking season, not the least of which would be, even though in the Valley, Josh, we can have Thanksgiving outdoors. We're going to have a whole bunch of Northern areas going indoors, including Navajo Nation. That's true. I mean, there are a lot of different factors to play with. Plus the Midwest and East and Canadians come here en masse normally during the wintertime. I don't know what kind of snowbird season we're going to have. It's going to be interesting whether people are going to brave the flights to get to good weather. That's an interesting question. On a normal year, our hospital capacity, January, February, March, those are the three months with the least hospital capacity. They're the fullest, the highest occupancy in January. And the hospitals know that and they plan for it and stuff. 
That time is crazy. I mean, I've been doing this for 15 years, and all I can tell you is that time is crazy. Every hospital I've worked at, every hospital I've talked to, every ER physician that I've talked to, it's always the same kind of in January and February, March. You never have hallway beds. You never have people stacked up in the hallways. In January, February, March, it is every day. Every day, you're stacking people up in the hallways. And with COVID, you can't do that. You can't put a COVID patient in a hallway and put a mask on them and call it okay. We're at the point now where if the testing is inaccurate, we have to assume that everybody has it. And so if you think you've got a COVID patient, you put them behind a closed door. You've only got so many spots later. It's a real physical challenge to ERs where normally we would put people sort of wherever we could and sort of fit everybody in and try to expand our capacity. It's always bonkers, uh, January, February, and March. Last question. Each person, I'd like you to give advice to our listeners. We're nearly seven months into this thing. There's a bunch of fatigue out there. There's also a bunch of adaptation and resiliency. But if you put yourself in the shoes of a normal everyday Arizonan, what do you think that person's outlook, attitude, and behavior should look like? I'm going to start with Will. I'm not really qualified to answer that question. The reason I say that is I have one lived experience. I've had one experience with COVID and I could try to imagine what it's like for low-income people who've lost their job and lost their health insurance and have been trying to struggle with helping their kids through school and so forth. And I'm reluctant to even answer that question because I'm just not well-informed enough because there are so many different experiences that are happening throughout this pandemic. I think it was the New York Times that had a piece about three weeks ago about how really this has been two different pandemics. There's been one pandemic for the upper middle class, and there's been different kind of pandemic for low-income Americans. And I just really feel for the low-income Americans that have been trying to struggle dealing with the pandemic on top of all the other economic stressors and social stressors that come with it. Housing, food insecurity, health insurance, uncertainty about the future. It's tough. Anybody else want to crack at that question? I'll answer the best I can the question and then speak to Will's point. But the answer is wear your mask, wash your hands, keep some distance, three feet, six feet. Outside is safer than inside and try to live the rest of your life as best as you can. To Will's point, this has been incredibly difficult. To no one's surprise, Journal of American Medical Association said we're all drinking more. The number of opioid deaths and deaths from depression have started to go up. We're all struggling with anxiety. We're all struggling with uncertainty. Heck, I even know emergency physicians who are either lost their job or lost hours or had pay cuts because a lot of people are doing exactly what they're supposed to do, which is stay home. And our healthcare system is very dependent upon volume. It begs a question whether or not we need to really closely look at that and see whether or not it's worth it to have it that way. But that's the bigger picture for people who are struggling every day, which I would largely say is most of us. To some extent, some of us are struggling a lot more. And all I can say is it's going to be the present and the future for a while get used to wearing a mask, get used to doing hand hygiene, get used to these mitigation efforts, incorporate them into your daily life. Well said. Josh, anything you want to add? I agree with everything that's been said. I would say one other thing is take advantage of what you can. So if you are someone who has to go out and interact with the public, if you are somebody who has to in your job or you can't stay at home, 
get tested. I mean, there are free testing sites now all around. There's certainly a lot of them in Maricopa County. I know we're putting a lot of them out in a lot of the, the peripheral counties. You know, they're free. Go get tested once a week if you want. Especially the PCR-based tests are still accurate. Antigen tests, maybe not as much, but if you have those and you can use them, use those too. Take advantage of that if you can. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Will. And thank you, Nick. As we head into Halloween, here's hoping Arizonans aren't tricked into thinking that we can relax when it comes to COVID-19. Just as importantly, don't forget that a twindemic of flu and rising COVID cases is possible. And avoiding that twindemic that would overburden hospital emergency rooms? That's up to us. So stay COVID smart. Get your flu shot now to help avoid the combined effect of the flu and COVID on our neighbors, our healthcare professionals, and our hospitals. Next, make sure you continue to wash up, mask up, physically distance whenever you can, and keep a heads up for each other out there. Double points for masking up, by the way. It can help prevent COVID and the flu from spreading. As Josh pointed out, testing helps too. It's more broadly available, and it's free. When in doubt, get tested. Lastly, remember that we're in a marathon, not a sprint. By being in this together, we will get out of this together. Our COVID-19 roundtable will be back in two weeks. In the meantime, don't hesitate to delve into our back catalog of episodes. Like last week's intriguing and insightful episode featuring three incredible emerging leaders from Tucson, or any of the rest of our nearly 50 episodes. There is a lot to listen to, including guests from across the state and national experts too. Visit us on the web at vitalisthealth.org podcast. Check out all of our current and past episodes on Spotify. Or simply reach into that podcast app you're using right now and select another show to find out what's going on related to health and well-being in Arizona. That's it for this episode. The takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in your place of business, in city and town halls, and in the domains of healthcare and public health. So please share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast to get notified as soon as new episodes are released. Or listen to the Vitalist Spark just like you listen to your favorite music on Spotify. Give us your feedback wherever you get your podcasts, or you can also give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments, they are all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this. With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon.